the congregation please open in their Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, once again, chapter 8, picking up in verse 27, we'll be going through verse 33. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God, we once again ask for thy help. Holy Spirit, thou wouldst aid each of us to hear thy word. Lord, thou wouldst help me to preach, expound, apply thy word. To also hear it as a member of the church. Lord, that we might Be drawn to know thee more, to love thee more, to trust more in thy work, Lord Jesus. We would have greater reverence for the scriptures which thou hast inspired. We would have greater trust in thee, more dependence upon thy Holy Spirit whom thou hast given us. Thou hast not left us comfortless, O God, but hast given us the Holy Ghost to strengthen us, equip us, Prepare us, grant us peace and joy in believing. Lord, we stand in great need of thee every hour, especially when we come to tremble before thy word. Help us all to make improvements upon it, to trust in thy work, O Holy Spirit, to apply it to us. Lord, open eyes, comfort hearts, Strengthen the weak knees. Set all of our eyes upon Jesus. It would be those looking unto Jesus in all things. The Lord rebuke Satan. That the good word be not taken from our hearts before it has taken root. We entrust our time in, the, in thy word to thee, O God. I ask for thy blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Here now, the word of God. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, that is Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it richly to us. Dear congregation, As the Church of Christ, we 
are not merely individuals. The embrace of individualism in Christ's church has been the occasion of much of the evil within her. Though we rightly repute what is known as the Erastian view of the church, which considers the church and the state as one and the same, we can see that in the places where Christians have been viewed as part of one's nationality, that being Christian was identical with one's nationality, that the false notion that each Christian is in their own sovereign right, a free individual with the power to do whatsoever is right in their own mind and their own conscience, quote-unquote, without any due consideration given to their roles and their duties in the body of Christ, that is the church, that in those countries, this sin has been greatly avoided. This sin of individuality. Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. The scriptures are not to be viewed as a wax nose in the hands of every individual, to be molded and turned any which way that one desires or deems best by their own interpretation, their own understanding, or their own conscience. Due consideration must be given to the work of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. The scriptures do not have sundry and diverse meanings, each according to the understanding of the reader. It's not up to the reader to determine the meaning, and every reader is going to have their own meaning, and each reading, each understanding of the Scripture is equally valid. That is not true. The the meaning, the true interpretation of the Scriptures are not sundry, but singular. They are one. As the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ has given his church gifts, many gifts, some of which are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, as we see in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It is not for each member of Christ's body to decide what he or she thinks is best, or to be supposedly bound to conscience alone. Rather, their conscience is to be bound to the word of God, and bound to the word of God within the context of their membership of the church of Jesus Christ, which looks like the diligent use of Christ's gift to them of pastors and teachers, given them that they might be perfected in faith and practice, equipped for their work of serving Christ and edified, till they all come, the Apostle Paul says, into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, being henceforth no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of man, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. As we see, when each individual Christian believes themselves free to interpret the word and the works of God, howsoever they choose, chaos 
ensues. Chaos ensues. And it damages the body of Christ. Chaos ensues and damage is inflicted upon the body of Christ, the church. How often, how often have we seen Christians corrected for their misunderstanding of doctrine from Scripture? For their misdeeds in the practice of their faith from Scripture? Only for them to respond something like, well, that's simply your interpretation. That's your opinion. Mine is quite different. I'm not required to do as you say, according to your interpretation of Scripture. I'm free to make my own choices according to my own understanding and my own conscience. We've heard it many times, have we not? This is most often the case with people who make a regular habit of absenting themselves from the gathering of the Lord's people for worship and instruction on the Lord's day. But such a view also often leads people to depart from the church for particular congregations. Church hoppers and church skippers are often individualists, submitting themselves only to their own private interpretation, bound to their consciences. In our text this afternoon, let us consider three points. Number one, miracles confirm Christ's person and work. Secondly, error requires rebuke. Thirdly, all salvation... All of our salvation relies upon a correct doctrine of Christ's work. So first, miracles serve to confirm Christ's person and work. Secondly, error requires rebuke. And third, all salvation relies upon a correct doctrine of Christ's work. So what that intro about private interpretation have to do with our passage? Well, first we see that miracles serve to confirm Christ's person and work in the ministry of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Holy Scripture, specifically in the Gospels. Christ's miraculous works were never performed for entertainment, for novelty, or to satisfy the curiosity of the people. They were not performed so that people might be in awe of the miracles themselves. That's never why they were performed. Christ never left his miracles right where he Put them and didn't also combine it with and annex it to instruction. The miracles, the powerful deeds that Jesus Christ did served to confirm his doctrine. Not so that every person who saw them might be free to what? Form their own opinions of him. He didn't drop them there and say, decide whatever you want about me. Rather, he always combined them with instruction of who he is and pointed to the miracle and performed the miracle so that it would be confirmed that what he teaches about himself and his doctrine is indeed true. Too often, church buildings are filled with rubbernecking spectators waiting to be entertained and have their boredom dispelled rather than with the saints of Jesus Christ longing to hear and not just to hear but to profit from the word of God, filled with Christians who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, who have an expectation that they shall be filled, as we see in Matthew 5, 6, in the Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. Such persons who attend merely to have their boredom dispelled 
Such persons attend the sermon in order to fill an hour and go out to form their own opinion. By doing so, they waste both their own time and their opportunity to feast upon God's word. They do themselves and Christ a disservice. But this was never the intention of Jesus in performing miracles, in doing works, and in teaching the people. It was never his intention that people just form whatever opinion they so desired. Not that they might have their own thoughts, but that they might have his thoughts. He taught and worked. After eight and a half chapters, the Gospel of Mark, filled with miracles, with wonders, with demonstrations of Christ's divine power, most recently last week, the restoring of a blind man's sight, Jesus now asks his disciples this while on the way. Whom do men say that I am? This he asked both to test them and to more accurately instruct them by dispelling any false notions that they may have had concerning him. It is a good practice, dear congregation, to know something of the general various opinions concerning any subject that we might more accurately grasp the truth of the matter. This very thing Christ does when he asks his disciples, whom do men say that I am? What's the general opinions that people hold of me? We notice that there were a variety of opinions concerning who Jesus was. For the disciples answered his inquiry, saying in verse 28, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. In short, every kind of opinion seemed to be held except the right one. Every opinion was held except that which was true. We see the same situation all around us today, don't we, dear congregation? Although in the West, even in America, general irreligion, agnosticism, and atheism are, not, are on the rise, still the vast majority of people in America and in the West consider themselves vaguely spiritual. They believe in some kind of higher power, some kind of God figure. And most consider Jesus to be an important religious figure. Thus, various opinions of Christ Jesus seem to abound, and they do. Even among professing Christians, evangelicals, the question, who is Jesus, is answered with sundry and often contradictory responses. A recent poll held a couple years ago, shockingly revealed that 70% or more, I can't remember the exact number, of evangelicals answered yes to the question, is Jesus the first and greatest creation of God? They answered yes. These are people in Southern Baptist churches, non-denominational churches, Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, evangelicalism broadly. Methodists answered that Jesus is the first and greatest creature of God, not God himself. Undergirding all of this, these differing views, specifically within within the church, is an erroneous sentiment that we are all free to form our own individual opinion of who Jesus Christ is. Here... The Lord Jesus 
turns to drive the point home to the bosom of his disciples, asking a follow-up question. What does he say? But whom say ye that I am? Verse 29. No matter what errors those without the church hold, it's as if he said, whom say ye as my disciples within my church that I am? What has your time with me, seeing my powerful deeds, hearing my teaching, taught ye concerning me? Peter's response serves Christ's purposes of driving his point like an arrow tip, deeper into the heart of the disciples. Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ, and then adding from Matthew's account, the Son of the living God. Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter had answered rightly, regardless of what the multitudes thought about Jesus in light of his powerful miracles and his teachings and his doctrine, his own disciples, the disciples of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ is to believe and hold that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what the church believes. That's what Christ's church believes. It is true that many profess the name of Christ, dear congregation. And many of those people that confess the name of Christ consider themselves Christians. They acknowledge that Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins by grace through faith. And that they make a regular habit of attending church. That's true. Especially in America. Millions of people. However, it remains a problem that many of such, these such professors do not hold on to Christ experientially and personally. Experientially and personally. Vague ideas of Jesus still abound. Even within the professing church. Very few, it seems, thoroughly realize that Jesus is very God. The one mediator. The one high priest the one and only source of life and peace, their own shepherd, their own friend. Many give intellectual assent to Peter's doctrinal assertion that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that is the true doctrine of Christ, upon which Jesus says in Matthew 16, he will build, govern, and protect his church, against which the gates of hell will not even be able to withstand But yet few combine this intellectual knowledge, this intellectual assent that they have of Peter's doctrinal proclamation with true experiential acquaintance with Christ Jesus. Hence, it is why Christ here presses it home to their hearts and to ours also. The scriptures are written for our comfort, for our instruction. They're not merely accounts, historical accounts to read and think are interesting. Here, dear congregation, we rightly see that doctrine must be driven home to the heart of each individual in the church. Dear congregation, each person himself must personally confess, as well as personally, experientially trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. That is our duty. That's who the church is made up of. It's people who do that very thing. But notice, and here is the benefit of the King James Bible. 
Christ saith not, Whom say thee? Whom sayest thou that I am? Rather, he says, Whom say ye that I am? Not singular, but plural. He says to the disciples, Whom say ye, all, plural, that I am? And it is Peter that responds. True personal faith is and must be individual. Yet, it cannot be separated from the universal faith of the whole church. Whatever the church as a whole believes about Jesus Christ, the individual members within the church also believe that very thing. Else, they would not be members of the church, members of the body of Christ. There is a real place for the I as well as the we in Christ's church. And we see this demonstrated so beautifully for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. But as Christians, we can only rightly say I in the context of the church's we. We must learn to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the Savior of his people by grace through faith, because, I believe this because, Christ has made all the members of his church to believe this exact same thing in conformity. And none belong to Christ who do not believe this. The reason why the church believes the same thing, it's not because they're told to, but because only those in the church believe this thing. And it's only this thing that they believe that is salvific. And only those in the true church are saved. In Matthew's account of this same exchange, to Peter's confession, Jesus adds this in Matthew sixteen seventeen: Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Dear congregation, the individual members of Christ's church believe in the correct doctrine of Christ's person and work because God has supernaturally revealed it to each of them individually, making it the transforming reality of their life by the faith which he gives them, revealed to them from above. Anyone can. We know this. Anybody can, by intellectual inquiry and study, come to confess right theological truths. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But no one can experientially rest upon this truth by living faith unless it be given to him from above. By the Father, Jesus says. Thus, dear congregation, let us not rest until we Personally, along with the whole church of Jesus Christ, say of Christ, My beloved is mine, and I am his, as we see in Song of Solomon 2.16. Christ's miracles and teachings were not accomplished so that every individual might think whatever he wishes about it, having his own private interpretation of them. But as John writes, the Apostle John These things were done, these miracles, these teachings were done and preserved for us in Scripture so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have faith through his life, through his name, and that believing we might have life through his name, John 20, verse 31. This is why, dear congregation, Jesus follows Peter's confession with a charge in verse 30, that they should tell no man of him. Why does that make sense? Why did he then say, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God? 
The disciples required further instruction. That is why. They ought not to go out and proclaim this truth until they had fully and experientially understood the whole of the truth of Christ's person and work. The proof of this truth had not yet been displayed, namely Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, which we see in verse 31. Jesus then takes the opportunity to teach them further, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So the disciples had not yet seen the fulfillment of Jesus as the Christ. They did not yet have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them because the day of Pentecost had not yet come. Jesus had not yet ascended to the right hand of his Father and had not yet sent the Holy Ghost. At this time, the disciples indeed understood much more clearly and much better than did the Pharisees and the scribes and the, because the Pharisees and the scribes thought that the Christ would be a king who would come in and militaristically establish his kingdom on earth. Well, the disciples knew that wasn't the case. But still, they did not fully understand what it meant that Jesus was the Christ. Again, remember, Christ isn't the last name of Jesus. It wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ who had their son Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one, the Mashiach in Hebrew. And that's what Christ means in Greek, the anointed one, the deliverer of Israel. So the disciples did not yet understand fully what it meant that Jesus was the Christ, the true nature of his kingdom and of his reign. What it really meant that Christ would be the deliverer of Israel. They did not yet fully understand that. Hence, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them further. That he, the son of the living God, as the son of man, must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. But the reality of the disciples' imperfect understanding is demonstrated by what we see next in our second point. Second, error requires correction, sometimes by severe rebuke. Peter confessed, the Apostle Peter here, confessed the common profession of truth which belongs to the whole church. You see, Rome, the papacy, errs here in saying that Peter was the pope here. And it was Peter that is the rock upon which Christ builds his church. No, it was his profession of faith, the truth that Christ is the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came to give himself for his people in order to deliver them from the punishment and wrath of God for their sins. So Peter confessed what was common to all of the disciples there, the truth that we believe thou, Jesus, art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when Jesus took the opportunity to expound what it meant that he is the Christ, which we saw in verse 31, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee, combining also Matthew 16, verse 22 in this parallel. While the disciples knew that Christ's deliverance of Israel and the establishment of his kingdom would not be a militaristic one. They understood that. Yet they could not yet bear the idea that rather than a golden crown being placed upon his head, Christ should have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. They could not yet bear the idea 
that rather than being lauded with praises and thanksgiving, the Christ should be mocked. That rather than being received of the people, Christ should be betrayed and given over unto death. They could not yet understand that rather than being set upon a throne, the Christ would be set upon a cross and killed to die a most dishonorable death. This, though true, was too much for the disciples to accept at this time. Hence, he says, do not tell anyone about this. Let us first, let us learn from this, dear congregation, first, that good men, true, godly people, can easily and swiftly fall into error. All men, all people, even Christians, are subject to erroneous views of Christ's person and work. All people are subject, even Christians, to erroneous views of Christ's person and work. We must then, therefore, dear congregation, guard ourselves against this. How? The word of Christ. The word of God. As we see here, the word of Christ serves both as our defense and our offense against error. Paul says in Ephesians 6.17, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus illustrates this for us in our passage by giving the disciples his word in the, in the form of a rebuke to Peter in verse 33. He says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest, that is, considerest, thinkest, not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Peter's mind, in other words, was not filled with the thoughts of God's truth. Rather, his mind was filled with thoughts of man's wisdom. God's wisdom, given to us in his word, dear congregation, must govern all of our thoughts and all of our conduct. Dear congregation, when we stray from the scriptures by neglecting to read it, by putting it off, by neglecting to fill our mind with a constant flow of them, we are then more susceptible to fall into erroneous views and to intentionally and deliberately then act out sinfully by fleshly wisdom. The psalmist prays in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's what the psalmist prays. When our hearts, dear congregation, when our hearts and our minds are not full of God's word, we are prone to think that we might know better than God. The Lord God has told us in Isaiah 55, verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, Jehovah tells us, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let us not think then, like the Apostle Peter foolishly did here, that it is anything less than a sin to be God's instructor. As Paul says in Romans 11, 33-36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, he asks, or who hath been his counselor? Obviously none. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what the Apostle Paul guards us with. As Christians, we must seek, dear congregation, 
to have any error in our views corrected. Christians desire and ought to desire to have erroneous views that they might hold concerning the doctrine of the Bible corrected. We must bring our minds into conformity to God's word. This is done by a frequent and diligent study of the scriptures. Next, from this, let us learn, dear congregation, that not only are we to correct error in ourselves, but we are also to correct error in others who profess the name of Christ. Now, this can be difficult and uncomfortable. There are not a few Christians, as we know, who maintain that the church's only role is to positively present the truths of the gospel with no mention of the errors and the heresies which plague her. We see this in the Southern Baptist Convention all the time, and they're overrun with heresy. But, dear congregation, we must remember this. This is important. Hear me now, because this is the teaching of the Scriptures. False doctrine is not benign. Mm. False doctrine is not benign. It is deadly. And especially when it touches the doctrine of salvation, it is not only deadly, it is satanic. Satanic. Peter rebuked Jesus for his teaching that he must be rejected and crucified for the sins of his people. What does Jesus do? Does Jesus just again positively assert the truth, reiterate it? No. He rebukes the error saying, get thee behind me, Satan. Anything which attacks the doctrine of Christ's salvific work is satanic. It's not benign. Satan desires nothing more than to cast doubt and confusion upon the work of Christ. That is what he is always about. It is not a mere, it is not a mere difference in opinion between brethren. When a doctrine is taught that adds works to grace for salvation. That's not a difference in opinion which makes the sole work of salvation not entirely dependent upon Jesus Christ. That's not a matter of opinion. That's not just a slight difference between brethren. The Apostle Paul does not call those Judaizers who confessed that it was by faith in Christ alone that we are saved, plus the keeping of circumcision. He does not call them confused brothers. The need to be corrected. But rather, he plainly states that they preached another gospel, a false gospel, and they were accursed and cut off from Christ. Galatians 1, 6-9. For Paul, their teaching, the subtle little addition, was equivalent to their removal from Christ. Dear congregation, Please be bold and confident. Be bold and confident with love, no doubt, to confront and correct professing Christians in your life, in your lives who hold to error. Some errors, no doubt, must be talked through as brothers in the faith. Those we shouldn't go busting in the door, get thee behind me, Satan. Some errors are matters of interpretation, of differences between brethren. And because doctrine is so important, 
Because as Martin Luther said, doctrine is life. We should talk about those things. But those false doctrines which attack the very foundations of our religion must be met with strong resistance. Strong resistance. They are not to be seen as differences in opinion, but as strong and destructive satanic delusions which damn souls to hell everlastingly and dishonor Christ, which is worse. Paul's counsel to Pastor Timothy applies to all Christians, not just to pastors and certainly not just to Timothy. In 1 Timothy four thirteen through 16, the Apostle Paul says this, Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. That's his counsel to Timothy, to pastors, to all Christians. That we take heed unto ourselves. Not trust yourself that you know accurately. We must give ourselves wholly to understanding what the scriptures teach. Sound doctrine. Dear congregation, we must understand this whole issue of false doctrine is a matter of life and of death, of heaven and of hell, of Christ being glorified and Christ being dishonored. By confronting damnable heresy, we may be used, we may be used of God to turn a soul out of the way of hell and into the way of everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And what an honor it would be. Notice that the damnable error, which required such harsh rebuke, came not from the Pharisees. Came not from the Pharisees. Who did it come from? Not from those without, but from the much beloved Peter, one of the three closest disciples to Christ. From Peter. Beloved Peter said this. So too, we must remember that Satan, as the scriptures say, often transforms himself into what? A minister of righteousness, into an angel of light. And promotes error through those who profess to be part of the church. Through those who profess to be part of the church. Thus, we must remember And those cowards in the seminaries do not. It does not matter who it is that teaches error, dear congregation. No matter how well received they are in the church. No matter how beloved. No matter how many books they've written that people have profited with. No matter how dearly loved. If they teach against the truth as it is in Jesus, dear congregation. They must be corrected. And if they teach damnable heresy, they, like Peter, must be rebuked. In the hearing of the church, God is no respecter of persons. Why should we be? Paul tells Titus in Titus 3.10, A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, 
Reject. Reject. If a Christian begins to believe and teach error, we again do not immediately go in, no matter what the error is, and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. We are not the Lord. We are not immediately to cast them out and reject them. But as Paul did to Peter, recall in Galatians, he had again denied the Lord Jesus Christ by his doctrine. Agreeing with the Judaizers, both in practice and in teaching, that we must add to faith circumcision. But just like Paul did to Peter, we are to correct them, to seek to win them back over to the truth. This we are to do twice. But if they will not repent of their error, they are to be rejected as Christians. As Christians. That's why it's a solemn thing. It's not to be taken lightly. The rebuking of falsehood. The calling out of error. The rejecting of heretics plaguing the church. As a pastor, I know much about it. It's not for people that want to be tough. And say hard things. And flex. It's for people who love the church. Who love the body of Christ. Who love Christ himself. And his word. And do not want to see people going to hell. And being led astray. And Christ being dishonored. That's who it's for. Amen. Not for people who want a bully pulpit. Mm. Dear congregation. Satan, through whom ever he advances false doctrine, is to be rebuked. We are not to take the rebuking of false teachers, the correcting of professing believers around us, lightly. But neither, and more so, are we not to take the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ lightly, so as that we tolerate destructive error coming against it. Third, our salvation depends upon a correct doctrine of Christ. Dear congregation, the reason all of this is so vital, the reason Christ tested his disciples' understanding of the doctrine concerning himself, comparing what is true, namely Peter's confession, with that which the common heirs of the people held, the common people held, The reason why Christ expanded upon Peter's confession, teaching that he must die for their sins and rise again for their justification. And the reason why Jesus then rebuked Peter's grave misunderstanding was what? To teach us that in the person and work of this most beautiful and divine person, Jesus Christ, is all of our hope, is all of our stay, is all of our salvation. If we misunderstand the work of Jesus then there is no salvation for us. Those who do not have a true saving understanding of Paul's doctrine, namely, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Those who do not understand that can never say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we do not understand justification by grace through faith, 
if we do not understand that Jesus is God incarnate, God manifest in the flesh, then we can never say that we are united to him, that we are individuals in his church whom he has redeemed, his bride whom he has washed with his blood and with the pure water of his word. Dear congregation, in closing, let us see ourselves as individuals of the church of Christ, united by a common profession and belief in the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let us seek, dear congregation, to correct error in ourselves and in others, giving ourselves to the doctrine of God's word and clinging to Christ Jesus as our Savior King and our God by a true, living, experiential faith in his person and work. May we never be curious onlookers, but living members of our head, Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh, who for us and for our salvation was made man to live and to die for us, that we might be reconciled back to God as our Father. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank Thee. Heavenly Father, we approach Thee by the blood of Christ, Thy Son, by the power of Thy Holy Spirit, which emboldens us. We come to Thee. Ask, O God, that our minds would be conformed to Thy Word we would understand more rightly, more correctly the doctrine of thy son, Jesus Christ, of his person and his work. We ask God for the help, thy aid. Cause us to be more diligent in reading, our, in reading the scriptures. Cause us to be more diligent in prayer, more diligent in attending the means of grace, more diligent in caring for thy church of whom we are individual members. We love thee. We praise thee. We ask for thy help. Continue to apply this word to us throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.